Welcome to another episode of Shattered Lives, Reach Ireland's crime podcast for the Irish Daily Mirror and the Irish Daily Star. I'm Owen Murphy, a news editor, standing in again for Paul Healy, who is on leave. And today is our Week in Crime podcast, where we look back over crime stories of the past seven days. And today's episode is produced by Andre Skintian. And joining me to discuss everything that has happened is Michael O'Toole, our crime and defence editor. Hello, Mick. Hello, Owen. How's things? Very good. Uh, Just starting off with this case down in Waterford, a mother has appeared in court charged with the murder of her six-year-old son in Waterford. What are the details of this case? Yeah, as you'll be aware, Owen, we'll have to be careful what we can say. There are limitations, but I think we should mark it. So uh, it's a lady called Ruth Purcell Healy. She's 37 with an address at Bishopsfield in Williamstown in Waterford City. Now, she we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. She appeared at a special sitting of Waterford District Court on Tuesday night, where she appeared on a single charge of murdering her son, Matthew Healy, who is a, was a six-year-old child. Now, Detective uh, Sergeant David Shore gave evidence that, she arre- that he arrested her at five past six on Tuesday evening. And when he put the charge of murder to her, she replied, no, thank you. Now, uh, the presiding judge was Judge Kevin Staunton. As you'll know, when someone is charged with murder and appears at the district court, the district court does not have any jurisdiction to deal with matters of bail. So Miss Person Healy was remanded until to Limerick Prison and she's going to appear in court next Tuesday. That's the, the 20th of February. So Judge Staunton did ask that a direct a psychiatric evaluation of the accused take place following a request from the defence solicitor Ken Cunningham. He also directed that the accused receive any medical attention deemed necessary. Now, as you and I are recording this one, we know that Matthew's funeral is taking place in Watergrass Hill today in County Cork, uh, where his father's from. So I think uh, there are quite a lot of people at that today. Okay, moving on. You broke a big story earlier this week about Kinahan cartel killer Freddie Thompson being in trouble with the law again. What's he accused of doing this time? He's already in jail uh, for murder. Yes, so he's serving life for the murder of a man called Dahi Douglas, who was one of the 18 people, up to 18 people killed in the Kinahan Hutch feud. So he was in the maximum security, Ireland's only maximum security prison, which is Port Leisha Prison in County Leash. Um, he has been investigated, so there, he's had what they're called P19s, disciplinary procedures. He's, he's causing a lot of trouble in prison and he's had more than 70 P19s for various infractions, some minor, some serious. But we also know that there has been a Garda investigation, so the prison service has contacted Garda and they've carried out their investigation. And it's our invest, uh, our understanding that he is very, he is imminently, he is going to appear in court quite soon. I'm not going to say when or where, but very soon charged with a number of offences. Threats to kill, assault and assault causing harm. Now, they can carry combined, maybe say 10 years, some of them carry five years, some carry 10 years upon conviction. So that is happening very soon, as I said, there's going to be a major security operation. He is currently, he was moved from Port Leisha Prison, uh, as I say, in Leash, down to Cork Prison last month. But he will be driven to court under really, really heavy security. I would imagine that the emergency response unit of the guards will be involved in this and the armed support unit to be, be a big operation. Now, here's the interesting aspect. He's serving life. If convicted, mm-hmm. he can, as I say, he can face up to 10 years. 
But I, I, I was trying to find out, will that be added to a sentence? Because it's an indeterminate sentence, because as we've said, life is indeterminate. It basically is anything. And you have to persuade the, the parole board to let you. That could be 20 years, 25 years, 30 years. I think it won't be, if he is convicted, it won't be added. It'll just be, it'll just effectively roll over onto his sentence. But the guidance we're getting is, he is a very troublesome prisoner. So irrespective of if he gets two years, five years, seven years, ten years, or gets acquitted, because he could, I think it'll still be a very long time before he, he, he sees the light of day. He was jailed in August 2018. The murder was in July uh, 2016. So he's already served six years on remand and in custody. You're, I think you're easily looking at another 20 years for Mr. Thompson. Yeah, that's an interesting point. We know a life sentence, effect, by name it means life, but the average life sentence prisoner spends about 20 years behind bars. So let's say he spends 20 years behind bars. It wouldn't be the case then that he'd spend 20 years behind bars and then this new sentence would kick in and he'd serve another 10 years. I think it's up to the judge because I know that judges can make uh, sentences consecutive, but I just wonder, because say if you're serving a 10-year sentence, the judge can say, right... When you're finished that sentence, you're going to start serving your seven-year apprentice. I'm not 100% sure about life. I think that the judge has the power to do that, but I think it's it's going to be more nuanced than that. It's basically a ruling system and they're going to look at him and it's really up to the um, uh, parole board. But I think, you know, I'll probably certainly be retired by the time Freddie Thompson can speculate about getting out, i put it that way. And that's that's not for a couple, I'm not that old. Yeah, it's an interesting point because um, if somebody kills, for instance, two people and is given a life sentence for those two murders, it's not the case that you get two life sentences served back to back. It's only one life sentence. You can only have one life to serve, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Now, if you, but you can, we know of one killer who was released from prison on a life sentence. So the way it works is when you're, you do serve your life sentence, you're released on uh, license and if you do any infractions any crimes you're brought back in but that killer killed while he was out on license so he started a whole a life sentence again so it's, it started again basically it wasn't an activation of the other one but yes it is it is quite complicated I, and as I said I think the judge will have the power to say right if he gets parole I want him to start serving this I think that's unlikely I think it'll just be a continuation of his of his life sentence. So news of his fresh prosecution, it comes less than a fortnight after he lost his appeal against the conviction of that 2016 murder of Dahi Douglas in South Inner City. So where is he um, in terms of trying to overturn his actual murder conviction? Oh, no, that's it. He lost. I, that was at the, the, the Court of Criminal Appeal. I, I, no, that was only the 30th of November. I don't think there's been any notification of him. He can. We spoke about Graham Dwyer. He lost his appeal to the Court of Criminal Appeal last year. Then he subsequently went to the Supreme Court, which is currently considering its judgment in that. I presume uh, Thompson has the, the power to do that or can request. Dwyer had to ask permission of the Supreme Court to do it on a point of law or a point of public interest. I think Thompson can do that, but... I'm not really aware of any major point of law on this because essentially his appeal was against the use of CCTV uh, evidence against him. And the judges dismissed that. They said it was, it was very strong evidence. So I think that's basically the end of the road. He can go to the Supreme Court. I think that's unlikely because the Supreme Court doesn't, you know, take every request for an appeal, a final appeal. The Supreme Court's the final court of arbiter in Ireland. So I think that's really done and dusted for Mr. Thompson. 
Yeah, so Freddie, obviously, very much a serious criminal and has been involved in serious crime by the looks of it for many years. I'm interested in his background. Like, a lot of criminals like him would have had very troubled upbringings, very troubled backgrounds. Do you know much about his background? Well, he's 43 and he has been a, a criminal easily for 20, maybe longer years. I think reading about him, his first convictions were at the age of 15 or 16. So, you know, he was steeped in criminality. He really came to the fore. We obviously know about the Kenan and Hutch feud, which started in 2015 with the murder of Gary Hutch. Uh, Thompson was was involved and actually prosecuted his own feud, that which we used to call the uh, Drimna Crumlin Cocaine Wars. So it was a, 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 a him and another mob led by a man called Brian Radigan and they were at each other. And there were around 15 people killed in that uh, feud. Uh, Thompson's gang killed the vast bulk of them. They really, they won that feud and they killed most of the people there. So that's when he really came to prominence. But it was only in 2016, he was working for the Kinnan cartel. We know, for example, that uh, Christy Kinnan, the, the, the boss of the Kinnan cartel before Daniel took over, really sort of derided Thompson, at one stage he had him acting as a gardener for their for one of their properties in the uh, in Spain on the Costa del Sol. So he was he was regarded as a bit of a joker, I think, you know, not that serious. But the attack on the Regency in which David Byrne was murdered changed everything. And Daniel Kenahan, who's now the, the leader of the gang, effectively brought Thompson out in, into the into the gang, to the centre of the gang, because he knew that Thompson knew how to prosecute a feud. So he was really central when the feud emerged and we know that he uh, was central to the murder of Dahi Douglas. He didn't pull the trigger. There are other people serving life for that, but he was or he orchestrated it and he basically organised and he was involved in the, the ghetto and that sort of thing. But he was central to Daniel Kennehan's plan to take on the Hutch gang and murder innocent people as well and he was really, really central to that. So he became a very, very important figure within the cartel when the feud erupted. Yeah, it's interesting. The Gardaí eventually, of course, got that feud between the Kinnans mm-hmm. and the Hutches under control. There's an awful lot of them in jail at the moment. One concern is that I presume a lot of them will be due for release soon and that could reignite the feud. Is that a concern of law enforcement agencies? The... the, the the guards do not think the feud is dead. I'll put it that way. There are things going on in the background. I checked this about a year ago because the last murder was in February, January, February 2018. So six years ago. So you'd think that it's dead. Guards don't believe it's dead, but it's definitely moribund. And it's definitely in the doldrums. Thank God, because it was really, really vicious for a couple of years. Um, there, there are serious gaming players who are due for release. Some of them are probably getting out any time because... Some, some got, there are about 70, there were about 70 Kenyans who were locked up. It was really, really successful operation by the guards. But not every one of them is serving like like, like Freddie Thompson. Uh, vast bulk of them got maybe 10 years, 5 years, 8 years, 15 years. So those people will get out and those people will get out soon in the next year, maybe in the next couple of years. So you're right, what happens then? I think a lot of them, their, 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 so we say their, their cough has been softened by the guard really, really impressive guard of crackdown on the Canaan cartel. But a lot of them are inveterate criminals. So a lot of them will return to criminality. Now, the Canaans, as we know, are under pressure. Daniel and Christy and Christopher Jr. They're effectively on the run. They're, on, they're in Dubai, but the guards are trying to extradite them for, you know, serious offences. So they're under real pressure. Will the cartel 
probably have the headspace to go after hutches afterwards. I think that's unlikely, but that's the, that's the thing about huge. It can go like that. It can just explode at any time. And it's all about, we don't know what events will happen when people get out. So look, it is a concern for the guards. They're not taking their foot off the pedal. They've been hugely successful, but who knows what the future brings in this. Yeah, of course. It was somewhat one-sided, the feud, and that uh, um, it corresponds with the amount of them in prison. How many Kinahans in jail compared to Hutches? There, I, I think at one stage, there, so there are Kinahans in jail in Ireland, in Britain and in Spain. So James Quinn, who murdered uh, Gary Hutch, the first murder in the feud, he's in prison in Spain. We know Bomber Cavender, for example, is in custody in England and various others. David Byrne is in custody in England. Awaiting, or Liam Byrne, sorry. Liam Byrne is in custody in England awaiting trial for firearms charges and others. So, but most of them are in Dublin. There were, at one stage there were about 70. Now, some have been released, some will be released. That's a huge amount. I was talking mm. with various other sources before we, we, we did this, just trying to think, how many hutches are there? There is a hutch wing in Wheatfield. Most Kenahans are in Mountjoy Prison. Some are in Port Leash, but most are in Mountjoy. The, the hutch people would be in Wheatfield. So you're really talking Jason Bonney and Paul Murphy who were uh, convicted in relation to the murder of David Byrne facilitating that murder. Jonathan Dowdall was convicted of that. He's serving his sentence in Limerick Prison. I don't think it's fair to say he's part of the Hutch gang seeing as he gave evidence against Jerry Hutch in that field prosecution. So I don't think we'll consider him. There are other people associated with the, the Hutch outfit but it's probably not fair to say that they're part of the Hutch gang and they're not in for Hutch offences or the criminal offences. So the vast bulk of people jailed in connection with the feud and you know are really, really on the kin inside. And I always I always think of during one of the Hutch funerals, a family member said, We're not a cartel, we're a family. And I think that's clear for anybody. The vast bulk of the criminality and the serious criminality in this feud has come from the kin inside. There's no doubt about that. It was quite an impressive feat by the guards to bring it under control the um, Kinahan Hutch feud because as you mentioned it was very intense there for whatever a couple of years murder after murder after murder it was old fashioned policing I presume that ended it was it? A lot of intelligence and lots of intelligence gathering and lots of evidence gathering but yeah look the guards were very much 2015 2016 and I always say this I think at 2016 at the uh, around the Regency and the Kinahan cartel's reaction to the murder of David Byrne I think it was brazen and I really do think they were of such a size that they were a direct threat to the authority of the state. And there's no doubt, 2015, 2016, the guards were on the back foot. Now, middle, maybe two months after the Regency, I think the guards started their own counterattack against the Kenyans and was very, very successful. So say even, say, uh, January 2017, we know that the massive, there was a big raid in Rathcool where a massive Kenyan weapons cache was seized and there have been loads of, as I say, loads of arrests, loads of convictions for murder, loads of convictions for firearms offences, criminality. So it has been very successful, but there's no doubt the guards were on the back foot, but they did, effectively they did win and they did you know, concentrate the resources and they were given an extra five million quid. I always remember a couple of, a week or so after the, the Regency, the Doc B, Dogs and Organised Crime Bureau got five million quid extra and that just went straight into overtime and it led the way in cracking down on this cartel. So it was a successful operation, but it needed to be successful because the Kenyans were such a threat. 
Yeah. Just moving on, like I've always been intrigued by missing persons cases mm. and there was a big development yesterday in a missing persons case, which I don't know if it's been officially upgraded from missing person yet, but this fascinating story emerging yesterday about this missing Icelandic tourist, his name is John Johnson. Uh, it is now feared he was killed before being dumped in a Dublin park. For five years, this was a missing persons case. What what led to the change? Well, it hasn't been upgraded. I checked that yesterday because we know, for example, say Deirdre Jacob was upgraded from a missing persons to a murder. Uh, and there are various others. Jojo Dullard, for example, is a murder case. Uh, this is still classified as a missing persons case. You're right. He went missing in February 2019. He had been at the Bonington Hotel and he'd been playing poker there. Now, we understand he lost a significant amount of money, thousands of euro. Now, Gardy. And, and this is the issue. The, uh, the guards decided they're searching Sandry Domain, Sandry Park, just north, just south of the airport and north of the re, of the Bonington, so up that way towards the airport. Now, they're using cadaver dogs. They're using the guard of water unit. They're using various units. Now, the guards do not do that lightly. And essentially, the reason for this, they got two anonymous letters. One was posted to Ballymongarda Station. That's the seat of the investigation. Another one was sent to a priest in their greater Dublin area. I don't know who it is, but priest. But basically, there was enough information in those letters for Gardy to decide it is worth us searching the domain. There's a wooded area and there is a, a lake. Now, it's not the biggest lake, but it's it's a lake nevertheless. The Garda yeah, Water. I was, thinking about, yeah, I was thinking about that lake because I didn't think it was a very big lake. So I said, if he is buried in there, it won't take them long to find it. But is it big enough? Ah, look, it's big enough to hide a body. I put it that way. I, yeah. I looked at it yesterday. I'm sure it's deep enough and it's big enough. It doesn't need to be that. It doesn't be, need to be locked now or whatever. You know what I'm saying? It's a lake and you can put a body in there. But they're also searching a wooded area because it, be, it might be a shallow grave. No, look. There might be nothing there, but I think Gardy took the decision. We've got this information. It's vague. They want the person who wrote these letters, person or persons who wrote these letters to contact them again to give more information. But there's a threshold and they clearly decided that there was enough evidence in those letters and whatever other evidence they have to do that search. And that's not something from experience that they do take lightly. So you know, there must be a certain level of belief. And obviously, the, I mean, sadly, the belief would be, the suspicion would be that Mr. Johnson is dead. Yeah, it's it's interesting that they obviously took the letters seriously enough if they only got them yesterday. Um, I think they only got them yesterday. No, I, I, no, I don't. I, I think it was quite a while ago that they got these. Oh, was it? I think so, okay. yeah, yeah. But obviously they, they do de deem them to be credible to mm. start a search anyway. Look, that's it. You know, there are... With every missing person, with an awful lot of missing person cases, you do get cranks, you do get people contacting them. But whatever was in this, whatever tallied with the other information they have, they decided, and look, we're not privy to it as ever, we only get scraps. But whatever the information was, they took it seriously. So for me, that's an indication there's a threshold. The guards do not act on every piece of, you know, anonymous communications they get. So whatever was in that, it was enough for them to go for this. Okay, so now it's a matter of waiting to see what, if anything, they can unearth mm. from this lake. So they were doing searches uh, yesterday, which was Tuesday, today, which is Wednesday. So do they continue? Are they likely to continue until 
No, I, I got the sense that it'll be yesterday and today. Not might go into tomorrow, Thursday, but really the main crux of it is going to is yesterday and today, Wednesday. So look, it might be called off by the time we finish this. We don't know. I mean, and maybe they get, might get lucky, but just in relation to most missing person cases, they're solved by two things: either intelligence, people coming forward, people saying, "I believe X is there," or happenstance. So, do you remember that lady? Uh, she was murdered by the IRA and buried in Templetown Beach. She was one of the missing. And her body mm-hmm. was found by literally a, a person out walking their dog. That happens. But, you know, in other cases, say like Fiona Pender, there was a search. She went missing in Offaly in uh, 1997, I think. And a couple of years ago, there was a serious search in, in a rural part of County Offaly because they had intelligence and a statement to the effect that the suspect said, that's where Fiona was buried. And they were very hopeful of finding her remains, but they didn't. So, so you know, but that's my point that they get information all the time and they have, they have, they evaluate it. Um, with Fiona Pender, they did a search. With Deirdre Jacob, they did a search on intelligence and information. Nothing happened with that. So it's very frustrating, but sometimes there, and obviously in this, there's intelligence and evidence, but an awful lot of times it is happenstance. People do, yeah. dog walkers do find bodies, unfortunately. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's the case that many of these remain unsolved forever in a day. I remember one of the first missing persons cases I covered. I thought all missing persons cases were more or less found. Either the person was found, a body was found or something. But I remember the first one I covered was in Strokestown in County Roscommon. And there was this um, man. He disappeared in the middle of the night. Now, at the time, it was presumed that he may have taken his own life. But there was there was never any trace of him found. Now, it's five or six years later and still no trace of him found. But there are many, many cases like that throughout the country. There's actually over 800 active missing persons cases in Ireland. Like we would have had the majority of missing persons cases are solved and they're solved very quickly. Maybe they're teenagers who run away or whatever, and then they come back and they're put back into care or whatever it is. But I'm intrigued by the fact that there are over 800 long term missing persons cases in Ireland. Why, why do you think it is that there are many, many hundreds like that that uh, can't be solved? It's very hard, and there and there are. I, I mean, you told me that before we came on here. I was I was really intrigued to know that there are eight hundred people long term missing. Uh, do you remember there was a uh, an appeal there about a couple? I think they were missing forty years ago, mm-hmm. down down in Cork. I think their car was found. That's intriguing. Look, you know, unfortunately, as I said earlier, if people don't come forward with information or evidence or make a statement, you're really depending on coincidences and happenstance. And unfortunately, some people are just never found. Yeah. And I remember there was a a top expert from America, former FBI agent, came over to Ireland to try to solve one of the long-term missing persons cases. And I remember he went up to the Dublin mountains and Wicklow mountains. And I remember he said to me, this is going to be a hard nut to crack. Like Ireland is an extraordinarily rural country. And if there's bodies hidden anywhere, it is going to be very hard to find them in an extraordinarily rural country. Yeah, but even, I mean, I was talking with someone about a search, a civilian about a search for someone who had gone missing. And there were search teams out and everything. And his body was later found in in an area. But people had walked... no, it was it was wooded, but people had walked maybe ten feet past it, and hadn't found the body, and the body had been there for quite some time. So, unless you have really really specific information, or you get lucky, those people aren't going to be found. And you know, you do think of say they disappeared, the Operation Trace, women 
if it's most likely they're dead. We know several have been upgraded to murder. Their bodies have not been found and it must be a complete nightmare for families not to have that sense of closure that they want mm-hmm. to give their, their loved ones a, a Christian burial. So your heart goes yeah. out for them because they've suffered the loss but they're being traumatised really every day that the, the, that the remains aren't found. So it, it must be a terrible ordeal. Yeah, it was interesting what you said that John Johnson's case, that's the Icelandic tourist, that's not yet upgraded from missing persons case to murder case. And I remember having a discussion with um, one of the cold case detectives in the past or former cold case detectives and said, what's the difference between a missing persons investigation and a murder investigation? And why does it matter? And why do you upgrade it and all that? And I think sometimes it's the case that they're upgraded to murder investigations simply because, you know, um, there is a quite a degree of evidence mm. that they they were killed unlawfully but as well as that what's the difference between a missing persons case and a murder case there's a lot more resources put into a murder investigation than a missing persons case isn't there and that's the big difference really yeah look you can have in a murder investigation you could have 60 officers involved because there's you know there's the local units there's the na- there are the national units but you have you know Garden National Bureau of Criminal Investigation the photographic section in the technical bureau so it's a very, you know, most murder investigations do have 60 or more officers. So that that is a significant operation. And even, you know, we've had some cases where it hasn't, someone has died a violent death, but before it's officially termed a murder, we would say it has all the resources of a murder inquiry because the guards know which way it's going. So yeah, look, with a missing person, you could have sometimes one guard, sometimes a, a very small unit because it's it's a resources issue. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's understandable. The guards don't have the resource. Nobody has the resources that they want. So, you know, they have to triage this. So obviously if it's murder, it is, up, it is upgraded and that gets more attention. Yeah, that's interesting. That brings us on to resources, of course. And the Gardaí is under-resourced, I think it's fair to say, in terms of uh, the amount of officers there are in the country at the moment. But one thing they're trying to do to, to tackle that is the age limit. So the age limit for joining the Gardaí recently increased from 35 to 50. That's for the first time in the history of the force. The figures released this week suggest it has been a success, that increase in age limit in terms of getting new officers on board or new trainees on board yes so there's a well it's just finished uh, earlier this month but one month but there was a recruitment campaign for the Garda Síochána now interestingly the, um, as you say so it was 35 and then it was released up to raised up to 49 under 50 39 to 50 basically now the guards gave some figures this week that there were 6,381 applicants which is up because I think it was about 5,000 the last last year but of that 2,360 which is 37%, were aged between 35 and 49. So obviously they would not have been able to join up before the age limit was increased. Now, I think privately uh, Garda bosses would be very happy about this because we spoke about this in the pod, people going, eh, if you're over 35, can you be a guard? Can you, you know, are you physically robust enough to be able to chase guards and all that sort of thing? Well, 2,360 people obviously think they do. So I think there's a bit of, uh, relief within the depot Garda headquarters that so many people have applied and I think they're very happy about that. So it's the start of the process. There are three other steps. They have to do uh, an online test then they have to do a competency test. Then they have to do a, an interview. And then finally, the, the 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 physical test, which we spoke about last, last week. So there's still a few hurdles to get over, but I think Garda headquarters are very happy at the response from people aged between 35 and 49. 
Yeah, it's an interesting point because we discussed that last week when we we're talking about the, the fitness tests that you need to have and whether or not, as you mentioned, is a 50-year-old uh, guard going to be strong enough to uh, resist uh, or to overcome somebody who's resisting arrest? Is he going to be strong enough to chase criminals down the street? Obviously, the guard, they believe uh, that the, the a 50-year-old new guard can um, do jobs like that and can be an addition to the force. Yes, and the guards are quite clear about this. When you join Templemore and you're attested after your your period and you become, on the regular, a frontline uniform guard, you will be expected to do exactly the same thing that your 25-year-old colleague is doing. It's not as if there'll be any special treatment. If you're a mule, you're a mule. Guards call themselves mules. So that's it. So you will have to do anything. So you will have to pass the physical. Now, it is graded. So a 25-year-old will be will be expected to be fitter than a 49-year-old. But you will still have to get over that threshold and cross the line to be physically robust enough to do this. And there's no messing because you could be in your squad car in Temple Oak and you will have to deal with anything. So... You know, they're not going to be any passengers in this, shall we say. You will have to prove your physicality further down the line. Okay, that's interesting because I was kind of thinking maybe the 50-year-old might be uh, confined to the desk in terms of, you know, dealing with the passport applications and the driving licence applications or whatever it is. And then you send the young lad out on the street into into Ballymun or Coolock or Finglas to try to take on these gangs. That's not the way it works. Absolutely not. When you're on the regular, you're on the regular. That's it. So you'll have to put your shoulder to the wheel just like anybody else. Yeah, yeah. So what's next in the process in terms of like, obviously it's a bit like the housing crisis Mm. in some ways. The government says it's building 30,000 new houses a year and it'll take an awful lot of more years to kind of get the housing crisis under control. Is it the case, the same with the Gardaí, that the Gardaí is under-resourced at the moment, so we'll need a number of years of decent take-up before it's properly resourced? Yeah, so they want to get to 15,000. So they, they're saying that the the budget last year, the, the October budget for this year, spoke of 800 to 1,000 recruits. That all sounds fine. But we know that there are approximately... 350 retirements every year. We also know that there are probably going to be easily 100, maybe 150, maybe 200 resignations this year. So if there are 1,800 to 1,000 recruits this year, I would anticipate that would bring the the number of guards in the force by the end of this year up to 14,500. But they do want to keep going and they say that this is going to be an annual recruitment thing. So really, you're probably talking a net increase of I don't know, somewhere between 400 and 500, 600 guards every year for the next couple of years. And we'll see how high the force goes. But look, they do need more members. The country's getting, the population's getting bigger, so you need more guards. Yeah, and the key part of that, of course, is the other side. Uh, we can't have resignations and retirements, uh, more resignations and retirements than new recruits, as has been happening recently. That That's a problem too, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. So, you know, I mean... You, you gotta you gotta get more if there are more resignations and if there are more retirements you've got to you know take that into account and increase the number of recruits firstly you know if you only match the number of retirements and resignations you're standing still so you need to match that and you need to increase it to step forward and increase the size of the force yeah just moving on you had a, uh, there was an intriguing story today I think it was reported about Indian cops they've smashed a massive online scam after receiving a complaint from a woman in an Irish seaside scam so can you talk us through the details of this because it takes a bit of uh, explaining this is really really interesting essentially a lady in Dungarvan 
in County Waterford contacted the guard, the guard of Shea to say that she had received a call from an 083 number of someone claiming to be uh, a phone engineer, said that there was an issue with their phone said they were a Stephanie, even though it was a man, it was a man's voice claiming to be a Stephanie. So obviously it was a, a bogey call. So she contact, contacted the guards. The guards have a thing called mutual assistance. So you can contact, you can contact Interpol, you can contact Europol, or you can contact the Indian authorities. So the guards contacted the Indian authorities. Uh, it's called the Enforcement Department. And they began an investigation. And I had to go and check the geography of this in East India, in Bengal, uh, Bihar, which are two regions, and, and the city of uh, uh, Kolkata, we used to call it Kolkata, Kolkata. So it's northeast India. And they very quickly began an investigation and identified a place and they carried out a raid. And there was one fella, they arrested him as he tried to jump out of a window during the search. And hills of the hunt, they effectively found a call centre which was carrying out a massive scam. And essentially what they were doing was they were ringing people in Ireland and Britain, using people with British accents, Indians with British accents, ringing up, pretending to be telephone engineers, saying you've got an issue with your internet or you've got an issue with your phone. Here's, and they send them a link, we need access to your computer to fix this. And when they did that, they got access to their bank and, and rifled it. So it was quite sophisticated. What they were doing was they were fleecing these people. There, there were at least 45 victims and they were taking the money from their accounts, putting it in to to accounts in Ireland and Britain and then uh, transferring the money from those accounts to India. So it was quite sophisticated and I think there was something like 80,000 euros seized at the scene and in various bank accounts. Loads of mobile phones, loads of computers and four or five people have been arrested including this fella who tried to escape out the window. So it was a big operation. Shows the, the importance of international cooperation. Also shows the importance of people complaining to the guards because the guards got the complaint and acted on it. But I just wonder how many other people have fallen victim to this. It, it was a very sophisticated operation. And I think it's fair to say it's not the only scam operation like this. Yeah, very interesting. A very interesting investigation or case. Um, just moving on, I mentioned certain murders, certain missing persons cases that have always resonated with the public. And one of those is the murder of Rachel O'Reilly. She was 30 years old. She had two young sons. She was murdered by her husband, Joe O'Reilly. Uh, it's a murder that has always resonated with the Irish public. There was a sad development last week when her dad, uh, Jim Callally, passed away recently. A lot of people would be familiar with having seen him uh, with his wife, Rose, in terms of appealing for information and then giving interviews in relation to, to Rachel's murder. Uh, very sad that he passed away. He was a gentleman. Jim, probably, most journalists national journalists in Dublin would have probably known Jim Callally. I'd been at their house they lived in near the Whitehall area in North Dublin very accommodating they 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 they, they under they suffered two horrible tragedies Rachel was murdered at her home in Knoll in North Dublin in October 2004 and that set the scene for one of the most compelling Murder trials, that was 2007. He was convicted at the end of June 2007. Joe's still in custody. He's convicted uh, unanimously by the jury. Huge case. Covered it myself. And then another sister, Anne, she developed cancer. I think it was 2010 and she died as well. So poor Rose and Jim buried both daughters. So Jim had been unwell for quite some time and he, he, he died. I think it was 10 days ago. So it was a very uh, big funeral. And I just wanted to pay tribute to him because he was very accommodating to any journalist who spoke to him, he really did fight for Rachel. 
and he and he he, he was a, he was a credit and so is Rose. They campaigned, they did everything. They never refused to talk to any journalist, and I think they wanted to keep Rachel's memory alive. Uh, so look, it's very sad. God love him. Yeah, it's it's always one of those things. There's always something very sad about uh, parents uh, burying their son yeah. or burying their daughter because it's so unnatural. But when it comes to a horrendous crime in terms of the horrendous murder of your child, in this case by your by the the wife's husband, there's something terribly, terribly poignant about it. Yeah, and you know, unfortunately, they had to live their grief in the glare of publicity because murder is never a private crime crimes are this is a public crime and there is a public interest in it and as i say look we know that joe and rose went on the late late show with pat kenny and it and i think that catapulted it to a higher level so obviously they, they were able to grieve to a certain extent privately but they became public figures and it's the credit to them that they were always very accommodating and I think they realised that there was a public interest in this and they were always very open. So, look, I just wanted Rose, you know, send our, our thoughts to Rose and the rest of the family. There were lots of tributes to him. And, you know, I, I think we, it would be nice just to add her own because he was he was a, a lovely man who was completely devoted to his family and he never stopped fighting for Rachel. Yeah. And I suppose the two other people I was thinking about when I come to this conversation when I was just looking into it last night, and that is that, of course, Joe and Rachel, they both had two children. Um, they had two sons. I suspect they're probably in their 20s now. So I take it it would be very sad for them as well to lose uh, their grandfather, who would have been uh, very loyal to them throughout uh, their their own difficult lives. Yeah, no, yeah, I think they're more private people. Um, I won't go into this too much, but they were mentioned in the death notice. So there obviously was uh, a close bond there. Can I just, just going to change the point slightly. Um, I've been meaning to talk to you about this for a while. Um, you were up in, I think it was County Tyrone, wasn't it? A few weeks ago. It was. It was in Magashal, County Tyrone. Right. Yeah, a small little village in County Tyrone outside Dungannon. Yes, yeah, so my, well, I, I'm Belfast, but sort of, sort of my part of the world. So you were up there and there is a crime interest in this, so it's not politics and it's not naughty politics that we were in. Mm. You were up there to, uh, tell us why you were there. I was. Basically what happened was the, um, the, they agreed to go into Stormont. The DUP and Sinn Féin and everybody else decided to bury the hatchet. Well, mainly the DUP decided to bury the hatchet. They came to an agreement with the British government um, over the Windsor framework and more tinkering with the with the Windsor framework. For those who aren't familiar with that, that's about post-Brexit trading arrangements. Um, so the, the DUP decided to end their boycott after two years and go, uh, go into Stormont. But one thing that wasn't, there are certain hardliners who weren't happy at all about this. Um, and they, they held a public meeting in Mogashal, County Tyrone. So there was about 120 people at it. It was, uh, people at it were, were people like Jamie Bryson, who's a loyalist activist. There was Jim Allister, who is the leader of the traditional unionist voice, which would be known as a, a hardline uh, unionist party, more hardline than the DUP or the UUP. So they all came together and they were strongly resisting uh, the fact that the DUP were going to go back into Stormont they still think that the union is being kind of undermined by these post-Brexit training arrangements. So it was a very powerful public meeting, very powerful public meeting. Now, there was about 120 at it. I was at it in a journalistic capacity. Everybody else was there in a, uh, supporting their cause. There was about 120 at it. It was in the Magashal Orange Hall. Um, yeah, it was quite very interesting. You were spotted, were you? 
I was, I was. I was immediately, I was spotted all right at the start. There was a couple of occasions where when you're a journalist at a public meeting, you are a journalist. You don't really engage in all of the different things that go on at it. But there was a couple of things that was obvious that I was only there as an observer. So the first time, the first time was when uh, they all had to, everybody who was opposed to the DUP's uh, climb down as the people saw it had to stand up so of course I didn't stand up I was just a, a journalist so I didn't stand up and then at the very end of the meeting um, they all sang the British anthem God Save the King and of course I couldn't be seen to be standing up and singing God Save the King and um, one or two one man only one man spotted me at the end and he says you're not a king man anyway we, uh, when, when I was a kid, I used to live uh, for a while in a place called Banbridge in County Down, and we used to go to oh, the really? city. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I used to go to, where I, was, I was a wee Catholic from North Belfast, and Banbridge would have been predominantly Protestant. There were Catholic, some Catholics there, there was a Catholic church. But I remember we used to go to the cinema, and we always used to try and sprint out before they played God Save the Queen. But the reason why I wanted to ask you about this, I'm not talking about those people at this, I'm just talking about loyalism itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I am of the belief that there's a significant prospect for serious uh, loyalist violence within the next five or ten years. I mean, I, yeah. it's something that I'm really worried about. It's not, it's something that could affect the Republic. Uh, you know, I, I do believe this is, I think the more we head towards United Ireland, I think we're going that road. Loyalism, extreme loyalism, will have to react. And I think it only knows one thing, and that's killing Catholics. So their pressure valve is to start killing Catholics. Now, I'm not talking about those people at that I'm talking about extreme, you know, terrorists and paramilitaries. Are you, do you not think the threat of loyalist violence in the North, but also down here, is something that has largely been ignored? Yeah, I think there is definitely a threat of loyalist violence. Like, when you think about it, I always look at it in an overall sense. Uh, For the past 25, 26 years, we've had peace in Northern Ireland. Mm. It was one of the great achievements of the Good Friday Agreement that we did stop the killing. We stopped all the murder. We stopped all the mayhem. There's now a lot of controversy over Stormont and the the kind of uh, outworkings of Brexit. But we stopped the killing. We stopped all the murder. Now, a couple of years ago, before the Queen's death, there was some loyalist uh, loyalist activism, I suppose you would call it, and that was loyalist violence. Now, that stopped a couple of years ago. There definitely has to be a concern that there will be more loyalist violence. Um, I think there, I think that is a very much a live concern because there's a small uh, group of people, again, nothing to do with that public meeting, who um, are very concerned about kind of things up there. Yeah, and, you know, um, I would contend that the Republic is woefully underprepared for anything. You know, the nightmare scenario, which just people aren't we live it, even Ireland's sort of security analysis Ireland because we're a, a, the last bay island in the in Europe basically and next door is America everybody sort of thinks yeah we live in a benign security thing nothing's really going to happen we'll be grand and I mm. just fear that there isn't enough not even planning but even thinking about what could happen if because if you're like me, I'm a 32 countier. I fervently, I wear them. I fervently want to see United Ireland. I fervently believe it's coming. People are starting to talk about it, but they're not starting to talk about well, what could be the side effects in this. In other words, what the loyalists do. There are 12,000 loyalist paramilitaries. 12,000 more than the defence forces and the PSNI down more than the defence forces down here and the PSNI up north put together. 12,000, yeah. right? And people are just sort of they're not 
not acknowledging this or it's not even in anybody's radar. And all I'm saying is I think it should be because it could hit the fan in the next five or ten years. Yeah, I think the media is partly responsible for that. I, the, the media would say that they're only echoing what the, the public thinks. But I've always been intrigued by the lack of coverage of Northern Ireland in the Republic of Ireland media, that we don't cover Northern Ireland in any great depth. Um, and some editors would say to you, oh, should the people of the Republic have no interest in the North? And I've always had a great interest in the North. But, but it's it, I, th- there's not huge coverage of Northern Irish politics or Northern Irish affairs in yeah, southern media, to use that phrase. You're going to get me ranting here, Owen, but that's fine. Um, I've been fortunate enough in my job to see to go to every village, every town and every county in the Republic, right? And as you can tell, I'm a Nordy. I'm a North Belfast fella. I've never had anti-Northern attitude. Even, I, we, I do what you call death knocks. It's very stressful. Nobody has ever said Fuck off back to Belfast, you naughty bollocks. You know, if I'm calling about the death of a loved one. So I don't get that anti-Northern sentiment. Apart from one group, and I'm sorry to say this, there is most of the anti-Northern sentiment and partitionism or whatever comes from the middle class media. Is that fair? I think it's fair. Yeah, I remember Matt Cooper um, now of Today FM, he was making the point when somebody was saying that the, the Irish media doesn't give an awful lot of coverage to what goes on in Northern Ireland. And he used to say when he was editor of the Sunday Tribune, it was a, uh, back that was back probably 20, 30 years ago when he was the editor of the Sunday Tribune. But you put a Northern Irish story on the front page and you'd be guaranteed that your sales would fall in that week. So yeah. to me, he would argue that the media is only echoing what the Irish public thinks. Now, I don't know, um, but there certainly does need to be more of a kind of an awareness of what goes on in the north? I, just even on a on a political or a security level, look, this could impact. When, you know, there there obviously have been horrific attacks in seventy four in Dublin and Monaghan and Dundalk and Cavan. You know, there've been quite a few attacks. Everybody, most commentators down here, concentrated on the IRA. Fair enough, that's fine. They were a threat to the state, no problem, and they were much bigger. You know, killed more people. There are 12,000 loyalist paramilitaries. A lot of them are involved in drug dealing, but there are people that are still active. And it's just, all I'm saying is that I would hope that the security apparatus in this state is, if not planning, is going, what's that over the horizon? Is there anything that we need to start thinking about? I personally think they do. But anyway, maybe we'll talk that, uh, about that again another day. Very good. We've covered plenty of topics there, Mick, including politics in Northern Ireland and possible violence in Northern Ireland. So thanks to everybody for for listening to another episode of Shattered Lives. Uh, Thanks, everybody. And thanks to you, Owen. Thanks very much.